to Ephesians, and uh, Ephesians, there's a lot in this book. There's a lot of content in chapter one, so I'm not going to waste any time, and we're going to jump right in, and uh, we're going to pray real fast. Lord, Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, you be with us tonight, Lord, that you would just give me the words to speak. God, I pray, Lord, that your word would just uh, permeate our hearts tonight, God. And may we leave here changed forever by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to be uh, in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be going through the first first chapter. Hopefully, we'll get through there tonight if if I um, can get, get through it fast enough. So Ephesians, um, just to give you a little bit of history, a quick introduction to Ephesians. It was written uh, to the church in Ephesus about 61, 62 A.D. Most scholars believe in that time frame. The author is Paul. Surprise. All right. And Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, uh, which was established in Acts chapter 19, um, which Paul had established. And uh, the pastor of this church is a young Timothy. And uh, and they're dealing with some tough issues. And the church is one of Paul's most successful churches and was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so uh, Ephesus, where where uh, this took place was a um, situated in present day west turkey on this on the sea or on the on the coastline it was a seaport town um, many government buildings were there but it was not the capital but Ephesus uh, being a seaport city most scholars believe it had a population right around 600,000 people so it was a large city a little bit bigger than Bedford um, and so uh, and if we uh, look at the book of Ephesians, we can break it down into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal, uh, describing our heavenly position or the heavenly position of the church. Chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6 are practical, uh, describing the early condition of the church. So um, if you need to break those into two chapters, I guess you could do that, or two, two portions of, of the book, you could do that. Ephesians theme is this. Christians are all members of Jesus' body, the church. Christians are all members of, of Jesus' body, the church. Did you know that you're part of the church? Yeah, you're part of this church, but you're also part of the church, the church of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we can do that. Um, matter of fact, uh, Paul, also, who also wrote Romans and uh and a lot of scholars, I read this, I thought this was pretty interesting. Romans is considered uh, the king of Paul's epistles. And they say that Ephesians is the queen. So uh, of, I don't know what determines that. I don't know how that, whoever said that. But, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, there's a lot of lofty doctrinal things in Romans. And uh, right here behind it, uh, there's a lot of, of doctrinal uh, truths here in Ephesians. Um, grace, salvation, and mystery are are common themes seen throughout the book. So, uh, we got all that out of the way. Let's let's jump in here. Uh, as usual, Paul opens with a greeting. It's going to be our first subheading. Uh, verse 1 says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So, pa Paul is writing here to, the, uh, to Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ. You say this, he uses that term saint, you say this, hey, I'm no saint. And we often think of saints as those who are uh, marching, 
No, you know, someone's still marching in. No, uh, no. We often think that was a joke. You can laugh, everyone. Ha ha ha. All right. Um, we often think of saints as those uh, from long ago or part of the early church. You know, um, matter of fact, most of us can say, "Don't put saint in front of my name because that isn't me." Right. But here's what we know. <clears throat> Did you know um, that we are saints when we come to know Christ? We are. We become saints. And listen, there's two groups of people. There are saints and there are ain'ts. There are saints and there are ain'ts. Pardon my English. I grew up in Missouri, so <laughs> there are saints and there are ain'ts. And, uh, and, and, and saints are those who are set apart or the saved ones. And it's our job as saints to tell the ain'ts about Jesus. Plain and simple. So there you go. If you're a Christian, this is written to you. Uh, verse 2 says this, grace to you and what? Peace. Uh, a common theme in, in a lot of Paul's writings, we see this again, uh, same greeting from Paul. And I love to use this, I love to, to see this, grace and peace. And he places them in this order because uh, we will never have peace until we understand God's grace. And, uh, man, I love that. Grace, uh, a, a, a way to say that, you know, if you take the G-E-R-A, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. I think I've mentioned that before, uh, maybe when we were going through Galatians. Uh, grace is simply what? Unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. How many are thankful for grace? Amen. Because of what Christ did, we can walk in the grace of Jesus and in the peace of Jesus. And, uh I was reminded I, I did a funeral and I, I, in California, and I talked about this. I think I might have mentioned this in one of my, my sermons. But the thief on the cross was given grace and peace there because Jesus said, uh, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And so he spoke grace over that thief's life, and he also gave him com comfort to know that there was something beyond where he was in that moment. How many are grateful that God gives you grace and then gives you peace of the blessed hope of heaven? Amen. All right, uh, uh, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, not only do Paul's letters begin and end with grace and peace, but they begin and end with God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How many know that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega? He's the beginning and the end. He is, he is everything. So also, I, I think we <coughs> talked about this in <coughs> Galatians. The Holy Spirit's not mentioned here. And, uh, and I, I also, I always want to point to this. The reason the Holy Spirit's not mentioned here is not because Paul doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus Christ and never tries to draw attention to, to himself. That's what the Holy Spirit does, always points to Jesus. So here we go. Uh, if you need a heading, you can write this down. If you're a note taker, you can, you can keep this. Spiritual blessings in Christ is going to be our first subheading here. And, uh. I'm going to give you a lot of information really fast, okay? So here begins the longest sentence in the Bible. Did you know that? This is a very long sentence. Matter of fact, if, if you go back to the original, uh, there are 202 Greek words in this single sentence. That's a long sentence. I'm no English major, but that's a long sentence. My English teacher would probably say that's a little bit of a run-on sentence. But... But there's some great information, and it goes from verses 3 all the way to 14. One long sentence in the Greek, okay? Uh, I, th I found that kind of interesting. And the beginning of the first stanza of this sweet, sweet song of salvation here, um, uh, it, 
we can we can look at this. So so uh, from verses fifteen to twenty three, there is there's another sentence. So basically, this chapter can be broken down into two two long sentences. It's kind of interesting. The second uh, portion from verses fifteen to twenty three is one hundred sixty nine Greek words. So some pretty long. So the first stanza here in this particular verses three to fourteen is. Uh, uh, the first stanza is verses 3 to 6. It declares the work of the Father in the past, what God has done in the past. If you're a note taker, you write that down. down. The second stanza is verses 7 through 12, and it celebrates the work of the Son in the present. How many know that Jesus' work on the cross is still doing work today? Amen. And stanza 3, verses 13 and 14, it trumpets the work of of the spirit in the future. God's got your past, God's got your present, and God's got your future covered. Amen? I love that. So each stanza ends in the same way. It says this, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. Back to God's grace. So uh, verse 3 says this, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone look at your neighbor real fast and say, we're about to climb some mountains. All right, spiritually speaking, we're about to we're about to climb some doctrinal mountain. Uh, verse three says, "This blessed be uh, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places." Um, and Paul says, "Hey, I'm blessed." And this in the second part of this verse. Now remember, Paul is writing this this book. I don't think I mentioned this. He's writing it from prison. And uh, I don't know about you, you know, I don't know if I would be writing to encourage people from, from prison if I was in prison. You know what I mean? I'd probably be self-loathing, you know, and there and feeling pity party for myself. Not really worried, but not Paul. Paul's like, hey, I've got a lot of downtime. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start writing letters to all these churches. I'm going to start sending them out to encourage them. He knew the calling of God on his life. And, he, and, and there was no idle time. Boy. Something that we can learn today. There was no idle time. He kept moving and working for the Lord. So um, maybe you say this, I'm not blessed physically or, or materially. But we need to understand this about the context of what he's saying here is I'm blessed spiritually because the blessing is found in Jesus Christ, our, our spiritual blessings. They come from him. Maybe they don't always translate into a physical blessing. But sometimes, you know what, God can come in and change your mood. Right? Anybody ever had a bad day and the Lord just kind of helped you fix your day? Yeah, I, I do. Um, and what a fresh reminder to us today, especially in our, in our political climate, our cultural climate, we are blessed spiritually. Even though we may not, it may not translate to something physically or materially that we see, God still loves us. Amen? And, and he's spiritually blessing us um, Old Testament truths dealing with, with physical or financial or military uh, blessings depict New Testament truths. Um, you may have heard me say this, I, I, and I've said this, I don't know if I've said this here, I believe I have. But for every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament example. When you go through the scripture in the New Testament and you see a principle, you can go back through the Old Testament and probably find an example for that for that principle. So, so um the, the, old, the Old Testament truths dealing with physical or financial or military blessings depict New Testament truths that are spiritual, eternal, and heavenly. So even though they may be in the physical in the Old Testament, 
they translate to us overcoming spiritually in the New Testament. How many are with me? All right, a few of you are with me. I only need a, a couple of you. Um, he also, <clears throat> this is funny because in the Old Testament, David desired to break the bones and kick the teeth of his enemies in, in Psalms 58, 6. Some of you say, well, that's my verse right there. It's my favorite verse. And David, he said that, I want to I break the bones and kick the teeth of my enemies. And David would also say this. He also wished that the Babylonians would be bashed with rocks in Psalms 137, 9. That's pretty harsh, harsh words, right? Some of you are saying, I thought that before, but I haven't acted on that. All right. Um, does that mean that we should fight our enemies and go bash their teeth or go find them and go bash their teeth and break their bones and hit them with stones? No. But look, I want to show you something. Paul says something here in, in, in this book, in chapter 6. He gives us an example. Uh, these, are, these Old Testament principles are examples or types. In chapter 6 of this book, he says this in, in Ephesians chapter 6, 12. We'll get there in a few weeks. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? rulers, uh, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I said this, for every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament example. And so uh, I'll give you one right now. How many remember the story of Ehud? Anybody ever, ever heard of Ehud in the Bible? Judges chapter 3. It was a left-handed guy who snuck in and stabbed the, the king of Jericho, his name was Eglon, or was, was a large man, and he killed him. And matter of fact, the Bible says that when he stabbed him, the dirt flowed. I don't know what that means, but it's probably gross. And so there's a moment, but w here's another, another example. Jonathan and his armor bearer defeating the whole army in 1 Samuel chapter 14. These help us to know and how to gain spiritual victory. We look at these Old Testament examples, and they show us today, how do I make spiritual application of this thing that happened in the Old Testament? So we can look at these, these examples. Um, they, they teach us how to gain spiritual victory. And here's what happens. When we don't understand the Scripture, if, you, if you'll be confused, you'll lack understanding that the Old Testament pictures and stories and, and precepts all, but we need to understand this, that they all point to Jesus Christ, all right? How many are with me? The sacrificial system in the Old Testament would point to the Lamb of God, everything about it. You think back to uh, the death angel and the children of Israel and the blood that, that went on the doorpost and how the death angel would go over that, that household and would, would spare their child, their oldest child, their oldest son. And so, same thing for us. When the blood is applied to us, death can't defeat us because we have Christ in our hearts. Amen? So, uh, so this is what he's saying here. We're rich in heavenly places, and we're blessed in all spiritual blessings. Here we go. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. Everyone look at your neighbor and say, buckle up. Here we go. All right, here we're going to arrive at a very interesting discussion, um, and we're going to call it uh, election, okay? And, and there's a lot of doctrinal stances on election and, uh, or predestination. You may, you may know it as that. Um, and if you uh, – how many are familiar with, with that, the elect, the election? Different denominations have different beliefs on this right here. 
Um, I'm not here to, to point you or to anything. I think you need to rightly divert, divide the, the word of God and understand God's nature and who he is. And so here we are, and I'm, I'm here to fight doctrine with you or anything. I'm, I'm just going to lay it out here for you. Um, when we try to figure out the doctrine of election, and this is what Paul's saying, that God chose, chose him or God chose you. You know God chose you. John 15, 16 says that, that you, I, you have not chose me, but I have chose you is what Jesus said, okay? So um, God has chose you, and it brings us to this interesting discussion on election. So if you try to figure out the doctrine of election, this is what happens. Um, we know this. We were chosen in him, yet we have a choice, which is free will, right? So we have the choice to accept Christ in our heart, but not. But here's what happens when I, when I, I it's kind of like a, like a, like a, um, what am I, like a hamster on a wheel for me. It's just spinning, spinning. I'm, I'm like, well, this means this, but then this means this, and it's kind of like the perpetual thing. And you'll lose your mind trying to wrap your head around that at times if, if you're not careful. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, we try to explain the doctrine of election, you'll get, uh, you'll lose heart because, you know, there's this principle there that God chose me. And I, I don't know about you, but it, it, for as confusing as election may appear to be, the fact that God actually chose us warms us and strengthens our hearts. How many remember growing up in recess? How many were picked last when you were playing a sport? It's okay. You can raise your hand. Nobody likes to be chosen, but there's something valuable. And can I tell you, Christ chose you. He loves you, and there's something that, that we have to understand that when we're climbing this doctrinal mountain and we're, we're going to go somewhere with this. If you know that you belong to Christ, if you know whose you are, if you know in whom you stand, there's this stance that you have that you wouldn't have. You know, so... So we got to understand that. So the next portion of this says, before the foundation of the world, uh, when, did, when did Christ choose us? Before the foundation of the world. How many knew that God loved you so much that he already knew about you? I don't know about you. That brings comfort to my heart to know that, that Christ loves me that much. Dwight L. Moody, this is a great pastor up in Chicago, and he said this, he made this statement, and I happen to agree with him. I'm so glad that God chose me before I was born because I don't think he would have chosen me after I lived. Amen. All right. The next portion says, says this, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In Leviticus 19.2, the Lord instructs us to be holy as he is holy. And here Paul is saying, because God chose you, you are holy. Say, wait a minute, TJ, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, but there's something I, I got to say. You remember Joshua when he was with the children of Israel in Joshua 24, and he told them, he, he, said, he said this. He called them out, and he said, choose this day whom you will serve. So w when you can choose, what is that called? That's called free will, right? Choose this day what you say that. And then, then, but he said that in the Old Testament, but then Paul comes along, and he says, God chose us. That's true. What, what, uh, what Joshua said is true, but what Paul said is true. So how can God choose us, yet we still have free will? It's interesting, right? 
I told you, I told you we're going climbing tonight. I told you, and, and Paul just kind of comes out the gate. We're not even four chapter or four verses in, and he's like, hey, you guys, we're taking large strides here. Um, so it is as if as we walk through this door uh, over which is written the words out of Revelation 22, 17, whosoever will let him come. Whosoever will, right? Whosoever will. That, that sounds like free will, doesn't it? Free will. Whosoever will. Revelation 22. So we go through this door, and it's written that. Yet when we walk through this door and look back, we see the words, you haven't chose, chosen me, but I've chosen you from John 15, 16. And I think there's this, this, this thing there when, when you understand that we do have a free will, but God has chosen you. Love, there, love here at the end of this verse, it says, in love uh, is agape love, which is by choice, and it's not based off of feelings. How many know that when you're married, sometimes you choose to love versus off of the ooey-gooey feelings, right? Sometimes you got to look at your, your spouse and go, I choose to love you today because I'm struggling deep down inside. Don't look at me pious like you've never done that before. So it says this, verse 5, he predestined us. Now, there's a, a predetermination concerning salvation. Now, but guess what? Before you get all lopsided with me here, uh, look at this. You, you can't find anywhere at any time in the Bible where God predestines someone to hell. He only predestines people to go to heaven. You say, oh, wait a second, wait a second, TJ. So I, I want to give you an example here. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a little cute story. So there's a guy, and he's wanting to go to church, and he's feeling conviction in his heart, and so he decides to go to church. So he, he doesn't know anything he, about God, so he just steps into a church. And so he goes to this church, which is a, a, a Calvinist church or a predestination church, and he walks in. And when he walks in the door, and they said, they said well, oh, we're so glad that you're here today, and how did you hear about us? He said, well, I, I just kind of made the choice to come here. And they said, you, you had free will to come here? No, then you don't believe like us. You need to go to this church. So they, they pushed him down the street and they said, you, you need to go to this church over here. So a week later, he goes down to this church, which is an Armenian church. And when he goes to this church, he walks in. And they said, oh, we're so glad you're here today. And, and you know, how did you hear about us? He said, well, they told me to come here. And they're like, oh, you didn't come on your own free will? No, well, no, they told me to come. So then he leaves that church, and then he goes back. You see the cycle there? So, so there's, this, there's this fine line. But look at this. I want, I want to show you something. In 2 Peter 3, 9, his, this is God's desire, capital H. His desire is that none should perish. None should perish. Jesus came and died on the cross, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe. What about this? All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How many know that, that God's desire is that all mankind would be in fellowship with him and be in heaven with him? That's, that's his desires. But look at this. You say, well, why was hell created? Matthew 25, 42, Jesus said this, that hell was for Satan and his demons. That was the purpose of hell. But here's what happened. God gave Adam and Eve the ball, 
in the Garden of Eden, and they, they, they fumbled on, on the one-yard line, going, uh, you know, going in and just fumbled it for all of us, right? And with that, there was the fall uh, of this world, and we live in a fallen world, and the enemy brings sin. And here's what we need to know. When we refuse to walk in the blood of Jesus, we make a choice. When we choose not to follow Jesus, we've made a choice, okay? And how many know that choices have consequences? How many had teenagers or have teenagers? One of my favorite lines, choices have consequences. When you choose to do or not do something, they have consequences. So why, and you know, many people say this, why would a loving God allow people to go to hell? He doesn't. He gives them a way out. You know, see, that, that should put a little fire underneath us as believers to tell people about Jesus because people need to know. So uh, uh, he gives them a way out, but God gives us free will. And if you're going to make heaven, you're going to have to go by the way of the cross. There's no way around it. It's not by works. It's only by the blood of Jesus. It's only by his redemptive grace. And God made that way out of Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's what I know. It's your choice today. It's your choice. And God would say this, my will is that none would perish. So the next portion of the scripture says, for adoption to its himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So um, there's going to be a lot of Greek words tonight, unfortunately, and I'm not a Greek expert at all. Um, but this, this Greek word is huotheosia. Yeah, let's say it like that four times. And it's, it's translated to adoption, meaning uh, taking the place of an adult son. Now, we think of adoption. We think of adopting a young child or a, a, an infant or something like that. But the Ephesians would see this not in terms of bringing a baby into a family, but making a slave a joint heir with the master. You see the context? That's way different, right? If I was to take um, an adult, you know, basically an adult and say, hey, I'm grafting you in, and what is mine is yours now. That's a whole different story than when I take someone at, 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 as an infant, right? And that's what that's talking to. And, and so maybe you're here and you say, hey, I'm just a baby Christian in, in my walk. But according to this in, a Roman, in Romans 8, uh, 14 through 17, when, when you come to know Christ, you may be young in your walk. You may not know everything about God, but you are a mature member of God's family. And that's the case. So look at this. According to the purpose of his will, verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the first stanza. We went through the first stanza there. So uh, it, you're adopted. He chose you. Here's why. He, he's, he's blessed you in heavenly places. Those are all things that we just heard out of the theme of, of that first portion or that first stanza. Because it is his good pleasure to praise of the glory of his grace. Why does God bless you? Because you know what? We can't boast about it, but we can look and say, man, God sure has been gracious to me. I don't deserve this, but he's been so good to me. God chose us not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. I'm glad for that. I need that in my life. Uh, God, you remember God said to Israel, the blessing you'll enjoy, you'll receive, are not because you're a mighty people, where you are small and weak. This is, this is what the Lord told them. You are small and weak, no right, no, nor righteous in heart, for you are stiff-necked and stubborn. But this, look at this, but this is what, this is how gracious God is. But I'll use you to drive the Canaanites from the land 
so they don't infect others with their sins. So God used them in spite of themselves. Thank God that God's grace is over me and he'll use me in spite of my, my mess-ups and my, my failings. How many have, have failings every day? I do. In other words, like Israel, we are chosen to showcase God's grace. You know what? When I go into Lowe's, I should lift up my hands and say, I am a showcase of grace, just so you guys know. I'm nothing without grace. Maybe I'll do that sometime. You'll be like, oh, that's my pastor. <laughs> go hide, right? Uh, but it's not anything that I can boast about. We'll learn about that next week. I can't boast about it. It's not by any works that I but it's only by Jesus Christ. So it says this, with which he has blessed us. The King James Version uh, used the word accepted instead of blessed. And its meaning, it's translated into Greek, means this, to embrace. To embrace. With which he has embraced us. I don't know. There's a difference uh, when somebody embraces you, right? Somebody you know, somebody that you care about, when they embrace you. When I see my family I haven't seen in a while, or when I've been on a trip and I come home, and my kids come out, and they're running down the sidewalk. Well, not so much anymore. Maybe Novak. And they're, my dog comes out, and he's so excited to see me, right? No. And Novak comes out, and he embraces me. Or my wife embraces me. There's something about that. I like that. We are caught up in God's embrace. woo I love that. Why read on? In the beloved. We are accepted because we're in the beloved. We're in Christ. We're in Christ. Doesn't matter how you feel about yourself. Doesn't matter how you, you don't have to take your spiritual temperature hour by hour. Uh, Am I hot today? Am I cold today? How am I doing, Lord? Uh, How many have ever been guilty of doing that? You know, from day to day, Lord, you know, you feel like you're on fire for God this week. Next week, you feel like you're down, you know, and the spirit. But we don't have to do that. Spiritual introspection will lead to depression when we do it ourselves. And we think about, man, I am failing on this. It will lead us to depression. And if you fail to realize the simple principle, it's not who you are, but it's where you are. You're in Christ. That's powerful. Once you accept that, you'll enjoy your relationship with the Father in a new way. I love that song uh, that we used to sing years ago, In Christ Alone, you know. And it's not by, not by my works, not how good I am, not how bad I'm doing. It's just being there in Christ. Whew, that's a lot of weight off of me. That's a lot of weight off of me. Verse 7 says this. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the, uh, the riches of his grace. So here we come into another high peak or another high point in this mountain range of spiritual truth. So here's what it is. This is the glorious doctrine of redemption. I'm redeemed. How many are redeemed by the blood of the lamb? Amen. Jesus told us that he who commits sin is a slave to sin. Therefore, uh, he came on the scene to buy us, to deliver us, to redeem us from the slave market of sin. He bought you with a price. So you could be free. Look at this, verse 8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So the Greek word translated mystery is mysterium, and that word means this. You know, it's not mystery like we think of a mystery, but it's 
that which was previously hidden or obscured. You know, we think of mystery as like a puzzle. Uh, I, I have to figure this out. There's a mystery to this puzzle. But, but this is something that was uncovered or something that you realized. Kind of like when you, when you went to school, there, the knowledge was there, but it was revealed to you. Oh, that's why that does that. Or that's why I'd re- So it, it's, it's revealed to us. It's a mystery. It was previously hidden, but now it's revealed, and the blinders are taken off. And I can see his will and purpose. Uh, uh, for me in Christ. So I see things a little bit different. By his grace, he also makes known the mystery of life. All right. So verse 10 says this. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what is the mystery? What is the mystery? What is the big picture here? Uh, it, it It is that it's this right here. It's that in due time, everything in heaven and earth will be gathered with Christ, around Christ, for Christ. That's the mystery. And isn't God gracious to, to reveal his mystery to you and I? I love that. Let me ask you this. Here's a little litmus test for you. Are you full of joy tonight? Are you full of peace? Are you content? Do you have rest? If so... You understand the mystery of his will. Here's the flip side of that. Are you bitter? Are you angry? Are you frustrated? Are you upset? Maybe you don't understand the mystery of his will. So on any given day, the extent to which you understand the mystery of his will, uh, it will be the extent to which peace reigns in your heart. How many are with me? I told you. Man, this is this is lofty. I know there's a lot to it. I promise. Buckle up. Chapter two is a little bit, little bit easier. Uh, verse eleven says this: In Him we have obtained an an inheritance, and we've obtained an inheritance not from Christ, but in Him. There's a difference between from someone and in them. I'll, I'll give you an example. Tristan became my wife, and she received an inheritance of all that I owned when we got married. You know what she got? She got some debt. She got a car payment. She did have a car. Small savings account. <clears throat> small. Like mustard seeds. Small. Uh, and a hand and, and so a handful of hand-me-down furniture. Anybody relate? So that's why she married me, because I had all the good stuff. It was because she was she was a gold digger, right? No, it's because I was good looking. That's why she married me. That's the truth. Is that right, baby? All right. <clears throat> I didn't get an amen back there. I'm not going to continue on until I hear an amen back there. Um, but, no, she didn't marry me for my car. She didn't marry for my hand-me-down furniture or my small savings account. Those were just added benefits with me. Not much, but <laughs> it was added benefits I think she helped pay, get me out of debt on that. All right. Next portion of Scripture says this. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, who has counseled the Lord? Isaiah asked in Isaiah 40, 13. And the answer for most of us is this. We, when, we <laughs> when we think about this, when we, we're talking to the Lord back and forth in our prayer. Lord, I, I, I don't know if you're seeing this right. I'm not sure if you're seeing it. I don't know if you're understanding the severity of my situation here. Uh, Lord, 
Did you see this and that? Did you hear what they said? Lord, did, did you, do you perceive this and do you understand this? As if we expect the Lord to say, oh, thanks for filling me in on the situation, the all-knowing God. It's almost comical, but see, God knows everything. And, and, and after his own counsel and, and, and after his own will, and although we might be uh, tempted to ask what, what uh, we might be tempted to ask uh, the Lord to do certain things. Paul asked a, but a much better and a more, much more logical question. He says this in, in Romans, I like this, Romans 9.20 says, who are you? And he's talking about, you know, is this a lump of clay to question the plan of the Father? Anybody ever question God? You ought to, you ought to write down Romans 9.20 and look that up when you start questioning. Who are you? To, you're just a lump of clay. And that seems kind of kind of tough, but but the truth of the matter, the all-knowing God who knows everything, he knows the beginning and the end, and he's working these things for our good. He's moving things. Maybe it seems impossible here, but he's he's moving this into place, so this will fall into place, and this will fall into place, and then we get on the other side of the blessing. We're like, man, God, that was pretty cool. You really did know what you were doing, right? I don't know about you, but my tendency is to try to help God out, get in that driver's seat a little bit much. I was helping Novak. He... He said, Dad, help me, and he was on his computer, and I, I looked on there, and he was playing chess, and I said, this is kind of a, a, a tough game for you, buddy. I said, you're, you're eight, and, and he said, what should I do, and I was looking at his, his pieces, and I said, well, move this piece here, and, and then he made a few, I would say, not good decisions and lost some key players, and I walked away, and I went in the other room, and he came in the other room, and he said, Dad, I won. I said, you won? He goes, yeah, I won. And then he explained it to me how he won. I thought, there's no way he's going to win. But he won. I love that. So, I mean, so oftentimes we think, hey, we've got to help people or we've got to help God out. But God knows what he's doing. Amen. Verse 12. So that we who uh, were the first to hope in Christ might be, uh, might be to the praise of his glory. So um, here, they're saying here, we here in the early church were the first to put. Their hope in Christ. They were the first group of people to put their hope in Christ. Didn't have a Bible. You ever think about that? The people in the early church, they didn't have a Bible. Man, we have the word of God to stand on. But these people gave their lives on the sole belief that Jesus Christ was the, was the hope and glory. So for his praise and for his glory, not mine. Verse 13 says this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I like this. So sealed here means ownership. Everyone say ownership. So Paul's readers here in Ephesus would understand this vernacular coming from a port town. Uh, what happens when you, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, like you ship something in a, in a, um, in a big, big rig and, and a trailer, they, they take that and when they load a trailer, they put a tag on it. So when it, that trailer gets to the next location, they see that tag and the seal has not been broken. They know that that trailer has not been opened from point A to point B. So, so the people in this, in this town of Ephesus would understand a port town and, and, and a lot of goods were shipped there from Asia to Greece across the uh, uh, GNC and merchants would, would seal their crates with imprints of rings. Uh, before being shipped across the Aegean Sea. So look at this. And sealing speaks of commercial ownership, but sealing also speaks of commitment because of the, the modern Greek translation of koine, 
conveys the ideal of having an engagement ring. But look at this. This, this, is a, this is a beautiful picture. I love this. This picture is perfect. When you were saved, the Lord put his seal of his Holy Spirit on you, signifying that he would see you through not only on your, your voyage of this life across the Aegean Sea, but also your voyage across the storm-tossed ocean to life to bring you safely to his side and his bride. Remember, we were talking about the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? Uh, we were talking, I was talking to Novak on the way here. We were mentioning that today. And I told Novak, I said, you know what the blessed hope of, of believers is? Is that we're going to be in heaven with Jesus. That's the blessed hope. It's that simple. And what a beautiful picture that when we come to know Christ, he seals us. And he says, hey, I'm going to get you there. Look at this, verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Um, if I want to buy a car and I need to gather the money to purchase it, you know, and I'm there, I, I may put a down payment of earnest money, right? Earnest money, not earnest P. World, but earnest money. Some of you got that. Some of you didn't get that. Earnest money uh, to have the seller hold that car while I go, go gather funds, right? I put earnest money down. Put a deposit down. That's, that is what the Holy Spirit is. It's a down payment to show God will finish what he has begun. Like Philippians 1.6, earnest payment. Think of, uh, think of the times where you were profoundly touched or impacted by the Lord. And maybe times when the Holy Spirit welled up within you or when you felt uh, in, enveloped by, by his presence. Those are simply earnest money or down payments or sneak previews of coming attractions. Man, uh, when you feel overwhelmed by the presence of God, when you're in the presence of God, you feel his presence, you're getting a sneak peek of what heaven's going to be like. And we're overcome by emotions. Or, um, and, and I tell you what, God, I, I don't know about you, I look forward to the day. I look forward to the day where those things are revealed. When we're in heaven, man, there'll be no more sadness. And all things, we'll, we'll understand all things in his presence. He is the hope of glory. Amen? All right. Here's the here's the uh, third heading. If you're if you're uh, giving heading, and Paul shifts gears here. We just went up a very lofty doctrine thing. There's a lot in there. I know there's a lot of things I could have went uh, of like a hundred different directions on, um, but I, I just want to express to you there that God loves you. God has grace for you. God chose you, and that He wants you to go to heaven. If you don't know Him, you need to know Him tonight. All right. Uh, so Paul shifts gears here, and he begins to have a thanksgiving uh, and, and prayer, and he begins to pray over the, the church of Ephesus. I like this. He goes from a little bit of doctrinal things. Now I'm, gonna, now I'm just going to pray for you guys. Verse 15, for this reason. Everyone say, for this reason. All right, perfect. Stop right there. We're going to break that down. Whether you're talking to your neighbor or um, maybe teaching your kids, that's what we're doing right now. Kind of helps Wyatt do some homework. Tristan helps Novak. She's the she's the best third grade teacher I know. Sorry if you're a third grade teacher, but she's she's my favorite. But she's teaching Novak right now. And whether you're dealing with your spouse, I think um, there's a real key that that is uh, neglected by us. So Paul models it for us here. After talking to the Ephesians about the Lord, he talks to the Lord about the Ephesians in prayer. Did you catch that? After talking to the Ephesians about the Lord, 
he talks to the Lord about the Ephesians in prayer. You want to solve a lot of your issues? Ooh, after talking to someone, talk to the Lord about that person. Man, I, I love that. When you feel tension with someone, pray to the Lord about it. Uh, share, share about the Lord, then follow it by talking to the Lord. Look at this. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all saints. So he's talking about the church in Ephesus here. Um, here is the first one of, of two prayers in this book. And, um, and I'm surprised who he prays for because I don't know about you. He's, he's praying for the guys in Ephesus, the saints, because... They understand the big picture because they've, they've heard in faith and they believed in the Lord. They love God. They love people. And, and Paul, there's nothing going on, doesn't, nothing terrible going on. But he just said, I feel motivated to pray about you guys. You're doing good, but I still feel motivated to pray about you guys. There's something interesting about this that I, I begin to think about this. If you are doing well and are effective for the kingdom, you're doing something for God. You better believe the enemy's going to put a target on your back. We always pray for the sick. We pray for those afflicted. We pray for those that are, that are struggling or whatever the case. What we ought to do, we ought to do that. We, we don't neglect them. We pray for them. But what we ought to do is start praying for people who are doing well. I'm not just talking in the physical realm. I'm talking in the spiritual realm. People that are that are are they're shaking, <laughs> they're shaking the kingdom of darkness with the light of Jesus Christ. We ought to pray that God would protect them and that God would be there, be there with them. And 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 if you're if you're doing well and effective for the kingdom, it's going to be a big target on your back, and the devil will come along and he'll tempt you to fulfill the lust of your flesh, and he'll he'll throw things in your way. And, and that is why, that is why we see today strong leaders and strong pastors and people of influence falling hard. We should pray that God would be a shield around them while they are doing well. Just a little bit of advice. I, I think that's something that we can really glean from this, this chapter, verse 16. He says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Second, not Notice not only for whom Paul prays, uh, but notice when he prays. The Greek ideal of cease not is the same as a tickle in your throat. How many have ever had a tickle in your throat? Everyone go, <clears throat> sometimes when I'm up here speaking, you'll hear me go, <clears throat> I'm trying to get that tickle out of my throat, right? That's a very natural thing to me, tickle in my throat, right? We... Oftentimes we'll get a tickle in our throat and we'll clear our throat without even realizing that we cleared our throat, right? That oftentimes. In other words, Paul is saying this, I think to pray for you and it's so natural to me that it's like a tickle in my throat. Oh, I need to, I, I need to, pray, I need to pray for Kentley right now. <clears throat> Just a reminder to pray for Kentley. So, so it's so natural and, it, and it's spontaneous as if we're clearing uh, a tickle in, in our throat. So it's the same principle there. We need to pray for one another without ceasing. We're ceasing to, to not to give thanksgiving, but but uh, remembering them, whoever you're praying for in your prayers. Those who are doing well, those who are struggling, those who are different areas, right? We should pray, and, and it should be there. So look at this. Verse 17 says this. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Um, how many crave wisdom? How many want to learn? How many are life, life learners? I, I try to be a life learner. I try to learn something as often as I can. How many love uh, revelation? And um, each of us longs for instruction and insight and knowing where we should go and what we should do spiritually, right? We all, we all want that. But notice what Paul tells us. And look at this. And I love this statement. It's profoundly simple and simply profound. But look what Paul says. The wisdom and revelation that we so desperately desire is found in simply in the knowledge of him. Talking about Jesus Christ. Peter and John found out uh, on the road to Emmaus. Remember that story. And Jesus would say this on that road, Luke, Luke 24, 27, that all scripture, what? Points to him. All scripture points to Jesus. If you're spending time with him, if you're, and here's the thing. I think you ought to read the Bible, but I think you ought to need to go back to the Gospels as often as you can so you know the character of Jesus and so you can always have that fresh in your mind. And, 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 and so if you're spending time with him in the Gospels and the rest of the word, it will become clear. Look at this, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So notice how, how Paul prays. We often pray about the, <laughs> I like this. We often pray, and you can write this down. We often pray about the fruit of issues, but I like Paul. He prays for the root of the issue. Often we'll, we'll pray, man, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. We pray for, uh, we'll just make up a name here, Billy. We're praying, Lord, get Billy off the drugs. That's the fruit of the issue. But look, look, but look this. But we should be praying like this. Lord, give Billy wisdom. Let him know you. That gets to the root of the issue. So we change our behavior and our patterns through, uh, oftentimes as people, we, we change our behavior and patterns through pressure and counseling and by reasoning. But that change doesn't come until that person has a revelation of, uh, in, in their own eyes are open, right? That's what happens, right? What do they do? Uh, when they bring people in and, and they're confronting an issue with a family member who may, who may be addicted to drugs, they, 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 the family knows there's an issue, but that person doesn't have that realization. And, and sometimes when they, they have that intervention with them, that person is enlightened like, I am my own issue. And I, I am, the, and so, and the family's saying, hey, we love you, we, we, we want to help you in those cases, but oftentimes I've seen that, how many have ever seen that show on TV where, where they do those interventions? I've seen people that were frustrated because their family did that, and they walked out because they didn't want to, the revelation of that they were part of their own issue. So it says this, a person's eyes are open through prayer, and we ought to pray, God, open their eyes. God, I, we know that they're addicted to drugs. God, I pray, Lord, that you take those things out of their hands. But, God, let their eyes be open to what's destroying them. Let them see. the And, Lord, we pray to the root of the issue and not the fruit of the issue. So be like Paul and pray without ceasing for your kids, your family, and friends. Pray that they will see Jesus. So next portion says that, uh, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We can hope for many things, right? And many things that we can hope for are carnal in nature. I can hope that I can 
shoot par next time I play golf. That's a carnal name. Some of you are like, praise the Lord, let that be me. I accept that over my life, right? And that's, a, that's great, but that's in the carnal nature. Hope, uh, hope is simply this, is that which is coming. And there's one hope, and that's like I talked with Novak, for all Christians is we have in common, and that's Jesus Christ and an eternity with him. I love that. Heaven seems so far away, you say. Well, if you're a saint, can I tell you, if you're a saint, you are the furthest from heaven that you'll ever be right now. And if you're a sinner, you are the closest to heaven that you'll ever be unless you get your heart right with the Lord. That's perspective, isn't it? Right now, if you're a saint, <laughs> you are the furthest away that you are that you'll ever be from heaven. So once you're raptured up or once you die and you pass away and you go to heaven, guess what? You're going to be there. That is why we call it the what? The blessed hope. All right. Uh, what are the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints? So all saints, we are God's inheritance, his treasure, his prize. Uh, in Jesus' day, men would, would bury their riches in fields, okay? This is a common practice. They didn't trust the banks back then either, okay? They would bury their riches in fields. Sometimes they would die before telling someone where those riches were. And so in Matthew 13, um, there's a story here, and a man was walking through a field, and he trips over something and brushes off the dirt off of it to discover it is a treasure. How many would like to run across a treasure sometime? All right? Uh, he he then does everything in his power to what purchase the field is is what is what scripture tells us because he wants the field is it because he wants the field no it's because he wants the treasure so Jesus said this this is what he said about this this story this is what the kingdom of God is God gave the world to Adam and Eve I talked about this a little bit earlier they sinned and inadvertently gave it to Satan. And that is why we live in a fallen world with, with famine, with pollution, with corruption, and with death. But look at this. Jesus came and died and to buy back the world, not because he's interested in Lake Monroe or the Hoosier National Forest or the Rocky Mountains or anything that the great state, well, no, the Rocky Mountains aren't here, anything that the great state of Indiana has to offer. It's not, that is not his prize, but he is interested in the prize and the treasure, which is you and me. That's what he did on the cross. He paid that price. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. Verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. You say this, hey, my temper just seems to be uh, to control me, we say. But we say things like, uh, these lustful thoughts will always be with me, and we decide. And, and Paul wouldn't pray, Lord, give them power over sin. Instead, Paul would say this, Lord, help them to see the power that they already have within them. Oftentimes we pray this, especially in Pentecostal realms, well, we need more power, we need more power. No, we have the power within us. We got to make it work for us. So the the uh, dominating power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is already in us. If it can raise Jesus from the dead, what do you think it can do for you? The question is, hey, Lord, I don't need more power, God. I need to put to work the power that you've put within me. Verse twenty-one. 
far above the rule uh, and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The King James Version uses the word principality, power and might and dominions. And these are words to describe various categories of demonic entities. And we'll get to that uh, a little bit further on in this, this study. And, and angelic beings, there's different levels of those. And so he, he's confronting those. He's talking about this. But look at this. Jesus has power over all of them. Jesus has power over principalities, over power, over might, and over dominions. And the same power that resurrected Jesus dwells in you, according to Romans. Uh, uh, and so whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling is, is weak compared to the power that raised Christ from the dead. And that gives you dominion over whatever you're struggling and you're dealing with. If I'm in bondage, it's not a lack of power, but it's, it's because I failed to utilize the power that is already in me. I know that sometimes, I know that's a little bit tough. We say this, oh, I'm addicted, but God says this, you're free. We say, oh, I'm wounded, but God says you're healed. We say, I need counseling, or I, I, need, I need prescription drugs, or I need a program, and God says, you have me. And you're saying, TJ, I shouldn't use those things. Well, I'm, just, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but, but you have the Lord. And oftentimes in our lives, we'll run to every other solution but God. You say, hey, that's nice-sounding theology, but how does that work? We're going to read on, verse 22. We're almost done, almost done. And he put all things under his feet. Oh, you ought to underline that in your Bible. Who put all things underneath his feet? Jesus. You have dominion over anything that the enemy can throw at you. All things are under his feet. What things? Dominions, powers, addictions, problems, pornography, profanity, gossip, depression, meanness, temper, sadness, laziness. Whatever it is, you can get over it. But you say this, oh, my problem's so overwhelming and difficult, you say. You know, I'm reminded of a story when Jesus and disciples, and, and they were out at sea, and the storm was raging, and, and it looked overwhelming to them. And anybody ever been stuck at sea during a storm? Anybody ever, ever dealt with that? That's like one of my worst nightmares, all right, being stuck out in the middle of a hurricane on a boat. I saw the perfect storm. I ain't about that. And, you know, it gives me, I get anxiety watching the deadliest catch when they're out there, you know, doing all that. But can you imagine the waves probably look so overwhelming to them? And they may have been over their heads, but remember this. What was over their heads was under Jesus' feet. It may be over your head, but remember it's, it's under his feet. And Jesus is in is an absolute control of every situation, financial, physical, relational, vocational, political, fill in the blank. He is in control, parental, whatever, fill it in. He is in control. Look at this. Whatever waves are rolling <laughs> your way and seem to be impossible, I love this, are only serving as a highway or a pathway for Jesus to get to you because he's already got dominion over them. I love that. I love that. Look at this. And he gave them, uh, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. Talking about Jesus, which, and the, the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, uh, and and we're going to end end on this, but it's called community. You know what this is? You know what you are right here? We're a com community of believers right here. 
who believe in Jesus Christ. And we need each other. Everyone look, look around, point at someone across the building and say, I need you. Jody, I need you. I need you. Look, look, look around, find somebody and point at them and say, I need you. Oh, you guys are too quiet tonight. We need brothers and we need sisters who pray with us and care about us because the more closely we are linked to the body, the more clearly we'll experience the authority of Jesus' headship. Say, oh, many of you can say, oh, I can do Bible study at home on my own. I don't need a church. That's fine. I'll give you a good example of that. I can go home and we can make dinner for all our kids and we can make plates and we can all individually go to our rooms. And eat our dinner. And as a dad, that would break my heart. But And can my kids survive? They absolutely could survive doing that. We could do that every day. But there's something about when we come together. And, and as a father, when I see my kids today, my, my two oldest were, were doing homeschool. And they were working side by side, but they were laughing and, and, and cutting up, and I thought, man, this is, this is beautiful. This is, this is what it's about. They're not fighting. They're actually laughing, and I can't really even get mad at them because they're, they're having fun, and they're, they're talking to each other, and they were helping one another and not talking down on one another. And that's what the same thing. When, when we have dinner and we're sitting there, and I, Tristan asked me, hey, how was your day? And, and we can look at Novak and say, Novak, what did you do today? And this, and we have this communion. Same thing happens when we come here together. We can lift each other up. We can encourage each other. Maybe you come here and you feel down, but maybe you'll find someone who will say, hey, let me speak a little life into your situation. Let me pray with you about that. It's what we are. We are a community. We are, we are a family of believers. And, and every time I go to church, for, uh, whether it's church or for, for a, a men's, men's study or a women's uh, meeting or, or prayer time, I'll see that I am attached to the body of Christ once again. In a very real and a very practical way, I hear the voice of the Lord anew in those moments. And I'm, I'm reminded that the storm that is trying to intimidate me is underneath underneath his feet. And God's given us authority over that, the one who is the head of the body. How many know that Jesus Christ is the head of the church? And from him is, is all things in life. And you know what? We just need to stand on that tonight. Thank you so much. I know, I know that was a lot. How many felt like you just climbed a spiritual giant mountain? I felt like like I was pulling a heavy wagon up a wag up a mountain, but let's just pray real fast before we dismiss God.